Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's that time of the year where the tournament is finally upon us. College basketball takes center stage. BetOnline is the number one spot for bets, odds, information, and the 2022 college basketball bracket contest. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get started today. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is March 24th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. 892 episodes strong here on the Take It Easy podcast, and we are continuing strong today with a continuation of our segment of oral histories. Today's oral history is the story of the Gonzaga Bulldogs. We'll get to that in a little bit on the show. I really enjoyed doing this one. And uh, we've done one on the Detroit Lions and the Chargers and Texas Tech football and Clemson football and Florida State football. We've done a lot of these. I really enjoy these segments. I hope you enjoy this podcast as well. But we have an A block for like the ninth straight day. It's a major NFL transaction. Like, like three weeks ago, it was Aaron Rodgers signing. It was Russell Wilson getting traded. Then it was Devontae Adams getting traded last week. And then we spent three episodes talking about Deshaun Watson. And then it was Matt Ryan getting traded. And now it's Tyreek Hill getting traded. The ninth all-pro player to switch teams in one offseason in the NFL. Kind of crazy, but the NFL is kind of crazy now. And this is an unprecedented time in the NFL. And... I'm going to sound like a Chiefs homer at some point here, but bear with me. I'm not trying to do Chiefs homerism. This is an unprecedented time in the NFL where in order to acquire game-changing players, you need to give up not just money in in the form of free agency, but picks and power to star NFL players. Organizations realize that these players have never had more value. Now, you can argue whether Tyreek Hill is one of those 15 to 20 game-changing players in the NFL, but it's hard to argue Aaron Rodgers isn't, or Russell Wilson, or unfortunately, Deshaun Watson are also these players who can change games with the two with with their presence, can change the outcomes of billion-dollar corporations, and billion-dollar corporations will bid for their services. And so what we have now is that picks and cap space are being undervalued relative to the rest of the league. And I find fascinating that the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers, which are two organizations that recently we've regarded as incredibly well run. I know we shit on the Packers for years and years about failing Aaron Rodgers at every turn, but since Lil Goody has taken over the Packers and since LeFleur has taken over as coach, even though if I don't know even if I don't know LeFleur is a great coach or not, ever since they took over the team, the Packers have been remarkably well run and have been one of the best drafting teams in the NFL. And you can lump the Colts in the mix here too as like a well run organization, even if they haven't had the same measure of success. Those teams are valuing cap space and picks at increased values. And I know that's easy to make an assessment of because one traded Devontae Adams, and he got a $29 million contract from the Raiders, and the Dolphins gave Tyreek Hill a $30 million contract 
and gave up a first round, second round, and fourth round, and two additional picks for Tyreek Hill. They gave up Devontae Adams plus to get Tyreek Hill. And it's interesting that the Devontae Adams trade happened before Kansas City made the move for Tyreek Hill because of how much value Tyreek Hill carried in a now open market of $30 million per year, even though they're going to fudge the cap numbers a little bit with Tyreek Hill. And they are going to get first, second, fourth round picks that now set it up in such a way that the Kansas City Chiefs have 12 draft picks in this year's NFL draft, which is more than the Cleveland Browns had during their 0-16 season. They had more draft picks than the Browns, whose only mission was to acquire draft picks. And a lot of them are late in the draft. It's totally understandable there. But picks and cap space are apparently being valued by smart organizations now. And this is an interesting point because the compensatory pick thing was something the Patriots always did, Baltimore always did, and they ended up building sustainable teams across 20-plus years. And now the, the 49ers are getting compensatory picks, and the Rams are trying to get compensatory picks, and all of this is becoming competitive advantages within the margins of a really, really cutthroat sport. But I will attest again, usually paying wide receivers $20-plus million doesn't work out. Because as great as some of these wide receivers are, they aren't the same game-changing talents that we've come to expect. Now, DeAndre Hopkins got dumped for nothing, and that was a terrible trade, and DeAndre Hopkins undoubtedly makes the Cardinals' offense better. Just as Tyreek Hill undoubtedly makes the Kansas City Chiefs, or makes the Miami Dolphins' offense better, and just as Devontae Adams undoubtedly makes the Raiders' offense better. It's all a matter of what you're trading off in exchange for what you're getting. Because what Miami is essentially saying is to get a number one receiver. I, I said Jalen Waddell could be a number one. Devontae Parker's probably a number two. And if they're hoping that Jalen Waddell turns into what Jamar Chase is, they might be sorely mistaken. They're the Plan C Miami Dolphins, which we found out this week. Plan C Dolphins tried to get Tom Brady and Sean Payton. And then the, the Brian Flores lawsuit drops. It's Plan C Mike McDaniel, it's Plan C Tua Tungavailoa, and it's Plan C Jalen Waddle. And I don't think Tyreek Hill fits into Plan C unless they tried to trade for Devontae Adams. But Plan C Miami Dolphins are in a place where they are saying to get a secure a number one receiver, we are paying $30 million per year plus giving up multiple draft picks to lock down number one. They're not paying Tyreek Hill to be anything more or less than a true number one receiver. And there's going to be all kinds of debates about whether or not he gets worse in the Dolphins' offense because Tua or Teddy Bridgewater is his quarterback and all that stuff that we just won't know the answer to until we get to the start of the season. If you had to bet, wouldn't you bet the Kansas City Chiefs would know what they're doing and the Miami Dolphins don't know what they're doing and don't have the organizational infrastructure to build anything solid around Tyreek Hill? I know people believe in the McDaniels zone running scheme, but I attest a running back room of Raheem Mostert and a running back room with Miles Gaskin and I forgot who the other running back is now there. Oh, uh, Chase Edmonds. Chase Edmonds, Miles Gaskin, and Raheem Mostert is not a good running back room. Even if you say assume that Mike McDaniel can do the 49er thing and make interchangeable running backs, that's still not a good running back room. And so they're trying to build offense with the passing game, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. The, the Tua kind of is in a weird place right now where I talked about last year, we know what Tua isn't, but we don't know what Tua is yet. And so that's all complex and interesting. But the thing that's fascinating about this is if the Chiefs and Packers are valuing draft picks, then is that a trend that other teams should be following? Is, that the, is this a tipping point where... If the, NF the NFL salary cap will go up, but if it doesn't go up at the rates we're talking about where we're talking $30 million for Devontae Adams and Tyree Kill, or we're talking $58 million a year for Deshaun Watson, which is, again, gross that Deshaun Watson is getting that kind of money in the first place. Absolutely horrific. And yet... And it's not because he it's not because Deshaun Watson isn't worth that amount of money, it's because Deshaun Watson is an active sexual predator who is rewarded with that amount of money. Players should get whatever they can get. It ain't my money and the salary cap is a contrived system to suppress wages of employees. Tyree Kill would be worth more than thirty million dollars a year on the open market with no salary cap. He would be worth forty five million dollars per season from one of these sucker teams like the Jets 
or the Dolphins, who have not a real chance of competing in the AFC, but damn it if they aren't going to be denied by trading first-round picks year after year after year. Essentially now we can look at the Laramie Tunsil trade, and this was another thing that I thought was interesting. We can look at the Laramie Tunsil trade and declare it. They traded Laramie Tunsil for Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. That's it. They, they, that is what their compensation was. Yes, they got Noah, I can't pronounce his last name also, bust of a pick, traded two of the picks to get Jalen Waddell. They got Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell in exchange for Laramie Tunsil. They also took, got that offensive lineman guy. I can't remember what his name is, but that's essentially the trade package that they got. And do you make that trade-off? It's a great question because of value of positions and things of those sorts. The Miami Dolphins are in such an interesting position. Clearly, they're going all in there, but so many teams are going all in in the modern market for star players simply because those players have never been quite this available. Sure, Odell Beckham was traded for a similar compensation package, and DeAndre Hopkins is a similarly skilled receiver to Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams. And also, they didn't get what these guys are getting. I don't think it's going to work out simply based on Raider and Dolphin reputation, but damn if it isn't interesting that those types of players are now available to the highest bidder for rates that blow every other contract out of the water without a significant spike in the salary cap. That's the other part is like the salary cap did not go up. They're just assuming higher percentages of their team's salary cap. Devontae Adams has weird cap workarounds, but those teams are saying that type of player has never been available. And the teams that have those types of players, the Chiefs and Packers that are banking on organizational stability are saying we've never been able to get this much value for that type of player. And from the Kansas City Chiefs point, one, I didn't see this coming at all because we did, for, for all of the talk of there were more NFL reporters than there is NFL news to report, nobody had this, nobody had this story anywhere. I remember when we first started doing podcasts, it was the summer of 2019, it was crappy audio quality, I walked down to the park, kind of where my house was. And one of the breaking news days was Tyreek Hill gets a giant extension from the Kansas City Chiefs. And they went on a dynastic run that normally would come to an end. This is normally the point where after four years, a team starts to break apart because you can't afford to pay everyone. It was the Legion of Boom. It was the Saints team. It's the Packers team with the last dance. It was the Saints team of Bounty Gate also. It was the Patriots run from 2001 to 2004 and they had to find a new iteration of the team I just thought maybe the Chiefs would be different maybe the Chiefs could go on a 16 year run dominating the AFC West 15 times and I also thought it was going to be Mahomes Hill and Kelsey all the way through and through and maybe that's not the case and maybe Tyree Kill will you know be proven to be a system wide receiver and Mecole Hardman and Juju Smith-Schuster Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Garrett Wilson can do the same things in that offense with Travis Kelsey as the base point. Maybe that ends up being the case, but damn if it won't be interesting to watch because that's a sad day. If you like, I'm not a Chiefs fan, but Chiefs sympathies are very much part of this structure. Patrick Mahomes is in the description to this podcast. So clearly Chiefs sympathies are there. It's just really, really heartbreaking that they didn't get to be together because I had been led to believe that was going to be the case. And yeah, I invest a little bit emotionally with this Kansas City team. Less so with Tyreek Hill simply because Tyreek Hill is also an abuser and didn't necessarily have to answer or atone for abusing, hitting, for hitting his child and abusing his girlfriend at the time. So it's not that way of like sad that it breaks up. It's just the football side of it really, really led me to believe that those three were going to be together for like a decade running the AFC, and it's not going to be the case. And Kansas City is going to pivot organizationally. The structure is going to remain in place. And in an offseason where these types of players never come available, everyone is available in a changing landscape of the NFL. And teams are saying we might as well just get the compensation out of the way instead of conceding the power, the money, and the draft picks for players that you could argue are not those 15 game-changing players. Russell Wilson, DeAndre, uh, Deshaun Watson, and Aaron Rodgers, you could argue them. Devontae Adams and Tyree Kill, 
Uh, you'd have to really stretch that one a little bit, considering they also played with the two greatest quarterbacks in the NFL over the last two years. And if NFL history suggests anything, bank on the quarterback more than banking on the wide receiver. But altogether, I find incredibly fascinating how many people are getting traded because now that that power to the athlete is increasing as the NFL does become more star-driven. It's less star-driven than the NBA and MLB, but it is still a little bit star-driven. And Terry Kill can flex his leverage and flex his power, get his way out of Kansas City quietly, while Devontae Adams gets out of Green Bay not so quietly, when in the past... It's contract disputes, it's holdouts, it's franchise tags. Now it's the value is so high on these guys that we can make these types of moves and everyone's going to be okay with it. And those teams that get them can re-navigate the salary cap so that they still have the money to pay other people and build a Waller, Adams, Renfro wide receiver core with Josh Jacobs and Derek Carr only making $19 million against the cap, but somehow making $36 million total, which not a complaint. Get your money. Snap, renegotiate, navigate the salary cap. It's all good with me. It'd be better to just get rid of the salary cap altogether, but I'm not eluded to the fact that there is a level of non-parity in the parity system. The salary cap is not about parity. It is about suppressing wages. Go get your wages, young people. And Tyreek Hill, go get your money and enjoy whatever is left of your career in Miami. Maybe it'll work out. History suggests probably going to be less than Tyree Kill as a top three receiver and more of Tyree Kill as a top 15 receiver. That's just because he's going from Patrick Mahomes to Tua Tungavailoa or Patrick Mahomes to Teddy Bridgewater. This show is presented by Athletic Greens. We've told you about Athletic Greens before. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to get your body right. Athletic Greens is one scoop in a cup of water every day, and that's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D. That's 365 days worth of athletic greens. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash believe. That's B-L-E-A-V. You can also use the link in the description to this episode. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome in, everybody. It is another oral history coming at you here today on the Take It Easy podcast and our Comical Sports YouTube channel. So today I wanted to talk about the Gonzaga Bulldogs and the story of them not just going back like the last five years or so, but going back 10, 20 years to talking about Gonzaga because Mark Few had a quote a few years ago. He's the head coach who you'll learn about as the head honcho of the most unique dynasty in all of college basketball. Mark Few talked about how there's an entire generation of kids and now young adults, like into your 20s and 30s, who have never witnessed Gonzaga not make the tournament, has never witnessed Gonzaga not making Sweet 16s, Elite 8s, and Final 4s. Gonzaga has been a college basketball powerhouse for a quarter century, and the fact that they started from a program in the West Coast Conference, which at the time was like the 17th or 18th biggest conference, like they were a true one-bid conference every single year. The fact that Gonzaga, from that conference, built a powerhouse on par 
with Duke and with Kentucky and with college basketball powerhouses consistently with success across the past 25 years is really, really incredible. And the story of how they got there is really impeccable and I think unique to the history of college basketball. So that's what we're going to talk about today. If you also want to hear our other oral histories, we did one on the Detroit Lions back in September. October, we did one on the Chargers, the San Diego Chargers, of course. Uh, Florida State football, Clemson football, Texas Tech football. We've done a bunch of these in the past and I wanted to bring Gonzaga in here. So by the time many of you are listening to this, Gonzaga may have been bounced in the Sweet 16 of March Madness this year, but there's also a chance that by the time many of you are listening to this, Gonzaga finds themselves in the Final Four for the third time in five March Madnesses. They are the number one seed in college basketball for the second consecutive season, and they, from the West Coast Conference, which now has become a little bit of a college basketball powerhouse, have gotten top one-and-done prospects in each of the past two recruiting classes. And we'll talk about that more coming up later. But to begin, let's go all the way back to the 1980s. Because Gonzaga University is a small school in Spokane, Washington. They are not a state school. They're a private school. They're not the University of Washington in terms of funding. They're not Washington State. They are a really, really small school in Washington. They're in the capital of Washington even still, but they are still in a tiny, tiny city in Washington. And Washington State, like the state of Washington, not the school Washington State, Washington State, as much as we talk about them being a basketball powerhouse, like great players from Jamal Crawford on down have come from Washington, They don't really go to the schools there. Washington basketball has never really been a powerhouse. And Gonzaga's story starts in the early 1980s when Gonzaga got John Stockton to play for their school. Now, John Stockton was not a major prospect at the time, and John Stockton never made it to March Madness during his time under Dan Fitzgerald and Jay Hillcock back in the 1980s. He never played in March Madness. John Stockton was a mid-level first-round pick with all the talent in the world and went to the local school, but John Stockton never played in March Madness, and Gonzaga didn't build anything off of the back of John Stockton. Gonzaga didn't make the tournament for the next five years after John Stockton left and another six years after John Stockton ended up becoming a powerhouse NBA superstar. Gonzaga under Dan Fitzgerald made the tournament for the first time in 1995. And they did it because they won their conference championship as the four seed in the West Coast Conference Tournament. Gonzaga had a 500 record that year. And they were a 14 seed in March Madness in 1995. They had never made the tournament before that. Not one time, not with John Stockton, not in the years after John Stockton became an NBA superstar. It took until 1995 in a fluke season where they were 7-7 seven and seven in conference play to make it to the tournament. And Gonzaga went to the NIT after that and all of that. And then Dan Monson took over the team in 1997. And Dan Monson had a bit of a magical season in 1999 with the Gonzaga Bulldogs because Gonzaga that year ended up winning the West Coast Conference Tournament. They had upsets against top 25 teams that year. It was a really interesting team that ended up having a crazy March Madness run as a 10 seed. They ended up making it to the Elite Eight that season. They beat Minnesota in the first round. Back then, Stanford was good, and they played their tournament games in Washington at the uh, old Key Arena that's now the Climate Pledge Arena. And then they got to the Sweet 16 and became a Cinderella darling by beating Florida before they'd go on to lose in the Elite Eight. So Gonzaga was like one of these George Mason type of teams that went on this magical run out of this weird tiny conference on the West Coast. Because the West Coast Conference in 1998 was such a small conference at this time. They didn't play football at all. 
It was Loyola Marymount University, which famously had the run with Bo Kimball, who famous, uh, um, Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, who Hank Gathers died on the court playing basketball, and then they go on this magical Final Four run. Pepperdine, which used to be a big-time program, the University of Portland, but there's not a whole lot of basketball teams here because these conferences barely even play football, and football is the massive revenue-generating sport in all of at college sports. Football funds everything else in college sports. Basketball does about 20% of your revenue, but for major college programs, 80% of your revenue comes from football, and these schools weren't even playing football at the time. So men's basketball realistically was the largest revenue generating sport for the West Coast Conference because even back in the 1990s, they were always guaranteed at least one team to make it to March Madness. And one team would give you a payout as it does today by putting one team in the tournament, you get a payout. And if that team wins, the conference gets money. It's a really weird system that's set up in college basketball. The more games your team wins, the more money your conference gets from the NCAA. The revenue of your success ends up getting split among all the member programs. And that's what happened for Gonzaga when they went to the Elite Eight in 1999. It was a Cinderella run that helped to fund the West Coast Conference's other basketball teams. And Dan Monson, after this Elite Eight run, ended up immediately jumping ship from Gonzaga to go to the University of Minnesota. Ironically, the team that Gonzaga beat in the first round of the tournament that year. And so, in the spring of 1999, enter Mark Few. And Mark Few's the name that you probably know if you know anything about Gonzaga, because he is Coach K to that program. Mark Few inherited this program that the year before did go to the Elite Eight, and they had talented players held off from that team. You know, they go on a Sweet 16 run the following year with... No-name guys, at least to the common eye, of Eric Childen and Richie Pham and Matt, S- Matt Santangelo. It's hard to pronounce his name, but they did not really have anybody that was of note. And they still made it back to the Sweet 16 the next season as a 10-seed in the tournament for the second time in a row. They were a 10-seed in the year 2000, or in 1999. In 2000, they were a 10-seed, and they made it back to the Sweet 16 the following year. They are a 12 seed in March Madness, and they get to the Sweet 16 again. Mark Few in his first two seasons with a 10 seed and a 12 seed goes to the Sweet 16 in back-to-back seasons. They were the equivalent of what Loyola Chicago is to what uh, what is now at the time the uh, Missouri Valley Conference, but Loyola Chicago switched conferences semi-recently, or like what Butler was with Brad Stevens, where Butler ended up going to the Final Four in back-to-back years. One year is a five seed, one year is a nine seed, and because of that, they ended up jumping over to the Big East. So this is a run of success that is program-changing for Gonzaga, but Gonzaga doesn't change conferences. This is still the early 2000s. Conference realignment isn't really a thing yet in college sports. So you have to wait until 2011 for major conference realignment to go into effect. But anyways, then they go into the rebuilding process. They lose in the first round. They make it to the second round of the tournament in 2003. And then the first great era of Gonzaga basketball really starts to take effect. Because now Mark Few's been at the job for three full seasons which means that the players who are being recruited into the program are Mark Few's recruits. Now, Mark Few was the assistant behind Dan Monson before, so Mark Few obviously recruited a lot of those players. But with him as the head man, by year four, presumably all of the players in the program were recruited to Gonzaga by Mark Few. And so in 2003, you have a team with three future NBA players on the team. Ronnie Turioff, Adam Morrison, who we'll get to him in a second, and Jeremy Pargo, all of whom went had like multiple year careers in the NBA. And Ronnie Turioff, I believe, won a championship with the Los... Actually, Adam Morrison might have also won a championship with the Los Angeles Lakers of Kobe Bryant in 2010. And so Ronnie Turioff, Adam Morrison, and Pargo as a, a rookie in 2003, losing the second round. Then in year five under Mark Few in 2004... 
they again make it to the second round of March Madness. And that year, they went 14-0 in conference play. This was Adam Morrison's rookie year. He becomes a revelation across college basketball. They go undefeated in the West Coast Conference. They make it as a three-seed to March Madness that year. As a three-seed, the highest-ranking Gonzaga has ever had in program history, they end up losing in the second round in an upset to Nevada. I'm sorry, so they were a two-seed and number three ranked in the entire country at this time. So Gonzaga found themselves in a position where they went undefeated in conference play, lost three games the entire season, were ranked top five in the country, and they lose in shocking upset fashion in the second round of the tournament. And in 2005, they brought back their entire team. Turioff was back. They brought back Adam Morrison. They brought back Pargo. It was supposed to be this great run of success the following season, and they again only lose four games the entire season, only lose two games in conference play, and run the table through the West Coast Conference like they've done every year since. They get a number three seed in March Madness, and in 2005, in the second round of the tournament, they lose on a last-second game winner by the Texas Tech Red Raiders, who were the sixth seed in their region that season. So 2004 and 2005, they lose five games the entire, uh, sorry, they lose seven games the entire two years. They lose five regular season games the entire two seasons. And Gonzaga only has two second round exits to show for it. But in 2006, Gonzaga ends up bringing back Adam Morrison for an additional season. They lose Ronnie Turioff, and now Pargo is coming into his own. They've also got other players who never end up going to the NBA, but they still have a uh, period of success in European leagues and things of those sorts. And also, the way that Mark Few supplements the talent is by recruiting the state of Washington heavily at this time. He goes and gets Micah Downs from Kirkland, Washington as a freshman. Pargo doesn't come from here, but Pargo ends up being from Illinois. They get a starter from Clarkston, Washington. They go to Brewster, Washington. They go to Vancouver, Washington. They go to Spokane to get Adam Morrison in their backyard. They make sure to recruit the, the state of Washington for a bunch of their talent. And this is goes all the way back to Few at the very beginning of his tenure, is the best way that we're going to build talent is by keeping players at home. We are the best basketball program in the state of Washington, and we are going to recruit the state of Washington heavily. And so by this season, about four to eight of their, about four of their eight main rotational players are from the state of Washington, and their bench is full of players from Spokane and Seattle and Brewster and Vancouver and all of these different places. And so in 2006, they end up again going undefeated in conference play. They lost two conference games in three seasons with Adam Morrison playing there. They finished the season ranked number five in the entire country, and they got as high as number three in the entire country in 2006. Tiny school in Spokane, Washington, playing in the West Coast Conference, gets to number three in the country. They end up being the number three seed in their tournament because they get seeded incredibly low, being punished for playing easy games on their schedule, even though they also beat the University of Stanford during this season, even though they beat Virginia, even though they beat Oklahoma State, even though they beat Washington State during this season. They get and they beat Michigan State in a triple overtime classic in Maui as well. They get punished and get a three seed in the tournament, which means that they're set up in the the Sweet 16, which is again their best run since Mark Few's first couple seasons where they were the Cinderella team. They get to the Sweet 16 and have to face the UCLA Bruins, and that UCLA team of 2006 was the beginning of a dynasty in college basketball. This is a team that had eight NBA players on their team. They had Aaron Afflo, they had Cedric Bozeman, they had Darren Collison, Jordan Farmar, Ryan Hollins, Luke Richard, and Baamute. They would end up getting Russell Westbrook a couple years later. They'd get Kevin Love a couple years later. They'd end up going to 
three consecutive Final Fours beginning in 2006. And that season was the famous game where Adam Morrison is crying at the end of the game because Gonzaga lost on a last second heave. And he knows it's his last game at Gonzaga. And now it's a famous video of the thrill of uh, the thrill of victory and agony of defeat because Adam Morrison misses a last second shot to beat UCLA and he starts crying on the floor and Adam Morrison to this day talks about how that's the thing that he's remembered for he was all american basketball player top 5 pick in the NBA draft and also pretty famous draft bust like he's one of those players that the Charlotte Bobcats end up ruining his career But he's still remembered for crying on the floor after losing to the University of uh, or to UCLA in his last game at Gonzaga. And so this Gonzaga team, again, loses two conference games in three years. This Gonzaga team gets top spent three consecutive seasons in the top 10 of college basketball, and they only had the Sweet 16 run and Adam Morrison to show for it, which in my defense, for the longest time, I thought that actually happened in the Final Four. I didn't realize that that, I thought it was also a game to go to the Final Four. It was a Sweet 16 game, and it's still remembered as one of the most famous college basketball games of all time because of how good that UCLA team would become, and because Adam Morrison was crying on the court after losing, and it brought up all sorts of conversations about male vulnerability, and how you're not supposed to cry in sports, and all of that stuff, and all of it was very complex, but it's still remembered as one of the most famous games of that era of college basketball. So, in 2007, Jeremy Pargo is still there. They recruit Matt Bolden and Robert Sacre and Austin Day to come play for Gonzaga, But this is the beginning of a new era of Gonzaga basketball. They still make the tournament the next couple years. They lose in the first round, and only because they win their conference championships and because of reputation does Gonzaga find themselves in this position. Gonzaga was a seven seed when they lose in 2008, and in 2007, Gonzaga found themselves in the tournament as a 10 seed. And so Gonzaga makes the tournament these couple years, winning their conference championship, And Gonzaga finds themselves in a really interesting place where now Mark Few is expanding his talent pool to recruit the world. Because in their same conference at this same time, they are also in a place where where St. Mary's, who is another uh, led by Randy Bennett, you probably saw them lose to UCLA this past weekend in March Madness. St. Mary's is the talent pool for Australia. Australia is working through this small little school in California because that's where they're recruiting people to. And so what's really interesting is that Mark Few gets to a place where he sees the success there and as well as continuing to recruit the state of Washington heavily, Mark Few starts to recruit internationally. And Mark Few ends up recruiting all sorts of different players from different places, whether it be Kelly Olynyk from British Columbia, or going to Alberta, Canada to get Mangisto, or going to get Mangisto Arop to go play for their team. He ends up going to Canada a couple times there. He ends up going over to France to recruit players, and obviously these players also come to America for a season of high school basketball as he goes to recruit them. And so this is a really interesting change for Mark Few because Mark Few, while they're still getting all of the people from Montreal, or he also went to Montreal, I should mention that as well. He goes to British Columbia to get Robert Sacre and he goes to Montreal, Canada, and he recruits Canada and Europe for basketball players. And this is an interesting switch because he's still making the effort to recruit the best players in Washington but is also going to places where there's a competitive advantage because as the NBA in the 1990s begins to expand basketball to a global sport, there's now a generation of players in other countries who can come play American college basketball. And Randy Bennett at St. Mary's, also in the West Coast Conference, found a competitive advantage recruiting Australia because Patty Mills 
comes and plays for St. Mary's. Matthew Dellavedova comes and plays for St. Mary's. There's a whole talent pool in Australia untapped in the recruiting systems. And since St. Mary's and Gonzaga can't compete in many of the, the American recruiting systems, they go to other countries to recruit players. And then eventually the schools see them as the leaders on that. And then they go and recruit other countries, whether it's Michigan bringing in the Wagner brothers and making a final four run with Moritz Wagner. Like you start to see this change generations later and the transfer portal changes the rules there. But to gain a competitive advantage, the West Coast Conference goes to other countries and starts to recruit. And so in 2009, now Gonzaga has built up a team with Bolden, with Sacre, with Austin Day. Pargo still has one more season as a senior. And they end up making another Sweet 16 run in the year 2009. And that year, Gonzaga found themselves in the tournament as a 10 seed. I'm sorry, as a 4 seed. They were ranked number 10 in the country as a number 4 seed. They end up going on a great Sweet 16 run by beating Akron and beating Western Kentucky and getting back to the place that they were when Adam Morrison fell on the court and making Gonzaga relevant, even though they were in the tournament every year. Again, we should point out, this is now a decade where Gonzaga has gone making the tournament every single year. And this is also around the time where a coach changes programs, where you go from a smaller program like Gonzaga and you jump ship to a North Carolina or a Kansas or a Duke. But the thing is, none of these jobs are available. And so Mark Few continues to coach at Gonzaga and decides that this is the he actively turns down power conference job offers to remain at Gonzaga. And he builds up another powerhouse program. In 2008, 2009, and 2010, Gonzaga ends up losing just three games in conference play during their entire run. They're also scheduling the Michigan States and the Michigans and the Virginias and the Dukes on their schedule in order to build up a resume for March Madness. And many times they're going in and beating these teams with the same caliber of recruits. And so now we move to 2010 and 2010 is an interesting season because now they bring in a new generation of Gonzaga basketball after that Sweet 16 run in 2009, which includes Stephen Gray, Kelly Olynyk, and son of John Stockton, David Stockton, playing for the Gonzaga Bulldogs. And in 2011, Gonzaga finds themselves making the tournament as an underdog team. They were unranked the entire season. And they end up making a deep run in the tournament by pulling off a miraculous upset against St. John's and then losing to BYU. But even still, Gonzaga found themselves turning their program back around once again. In 2012, they end up not winning the conference tournament for the only time in 20 years. The only time they didn't win a regular season or conference title. And this was Robert Sacre's final season, and Kelly Olynyk was now a junior, and he's becoming a top NBA prospect, and Gonzaga makes the tournament in a strong West Coast Conference that year. They make the tournament as a seven seed, and they win a first round game, and then they lose in the second round like most seven seeds end up doing. And then they get to 2013, where Kelly Olynyk is a senior, and David Stockton is still playing there. And Gonzaga finds themselves on a collision course for another deep tournament run. They go 16-0 in conference play. They lose only two games the entire regular season. And they enter March Madness as the number one ranked team in the entire country. With Kelly Olenek and Elias Harris and David Stockton, Gonzaga is the number one team in the entire country and only by losing to Butler do they prevent themselves from possibly being a perfect team going into the tournament they also lose early in the season to Illinois but still they lose two games the entire season Butler and Illinois and then they get to March Madness and in the second round of the tournament they lose to nine seed Wichita State led by Greg Marshall another mid-major conference beats them and ends up going to the Final Four that season. 
nine seed Wichita goes on a final four run that Gonzaga was supposed to have, if not for Kelly Olenek losing in what is just randomness of March Madness. March Madness can be chaotic and random and dumb at times. Kelly Olenek ends up going to the draft, and he's drafted as the 13th overall pick. Gonzaga's now sent nine different players to the NBA, six of which get drafted for Gonzaga across Mark Few's tenure, and they still only have a couple of Sweet 16 appearances, or about four or five, but only Sweet 16 appearances to show for it. And by 2015, that's when the transition changes here for Gonzaga because they've gone to recruit internationally. They've gone to recruit the state of Washington. And now Mark Few begins to dip his toe in the water in building a one-and-done program, which is crazy to think about. It's the University of Gonzaga. This is in the West Coast Conference. They're not playing elite competition in conference play. Now, they're scheduling elite competition out of conference play, but inside the conference, they're not a dominant team. And yet, Mark Few gets to a place where he says, I have reached a point where I can go after Duke, and I can go after Kentucky, and I can go after Arizona, and I can be a one-and-done program. And the first recruit that he gets in the one-and-done cycle, Demodis Sabonis. Y'all know Demodis Sabonis. He plays for the Sacramento Kings now, NBA All-Star. He ends up spending two years at Gonzaga, but it was universally believed when he first left school, Sabonis was going to be, or when he first got to college, Sabonis was going to be a one-and-done player. And so this was the next way to get over the hump, was recruiting not just players who were going to be there for multiple years, but going to Lithuania and recruiting the son of Ardivas Sabonis, who is, you know, most people would consider, he, he is a Hall of Famer. He made the, the Hall of Fame of basketball and would have been an NBA star if he hadn't been playing in the former Soviet Union for the very beginning of his career. But he made the Basketball Hall of Fame, and his son was a top five-star recruit. And he went to Gonzaga. And Gonzaga had a team with Byron Wesley and Eric McClellan and this new guy named Kyle Wiltshire, who ends up becoming a great player for Gonzaga, but we'll get to him in a little bit. But Kyle Wilcher is the star player on these teams, along with Kelly Olynyk. He's the one holdover from those teams that went on those deep tournament runs, and now there's a pool of freshmen with Demodis Sabonis at the head who are changing the game for the University of Gonzaga. And Gonzaga in 2015, again, loses two games the entire regular season. They made the second round in their first year together. But in their second year together, Gonzaga ends up going to the Elite Eight in 2015. They lost two games the entire regular season. They were ranked as high as number two in the country before losing to BYU late in the season in a weird fluky upset. They're the number two seed in their tournament, and they make it to the Final Four matched up against Jaleel Okafor's Duke team. And Jaleel Okafor's Duke team was really, really good. I still say to this day, Jaleel Okafor is the most dominant college basketball player I have ever seen, and he didn't do anything in the NBA. That dude was amazing at basketball. And Duke and Gonzaga in a 1-2 matchup meet for the chance to go to the Final Four, and Jaleel Okafor dominates the Gonzaga Bulldogs, and Jaleel Okafor wins the national championship for Duke a week later after beating the University of Gonzaga. And so Sabonis ends up going to the NBA, and um, they end up having that one-and-done transition. But now there's an interesting switch because now they go and recruit more one-and-done players, and they start working the transfer portal because coming from Washington to Gonzaga is a guard named Nigel Williams-Goss, and coming from the University of Missouri is a forward named Jonathan Williams, both of whom would start on the 2017 Gonzaga team, which we'll get to in a second. But first, 2016. In 2016, they decide, with Kyle Wilcher still there as a senior, 
and them coming off of the season where they just barely missed the final four. And this year they're kind of in a rebuild, but they're not in a rebuild because they're just kind of retooling the roster a little bit. And Sabonis has left and it's Williams Goss and it's Jonathan Williams. And it's this guy from Poland named Premik Karnowski. And Karnowski ends up coming to Gonzaga in 2012, battling injuries his entire career and through this entire run being deep in the bench, but also being seven foot one, 300 pounds as a center for Gonzaga. And it's only when Sabonis ends up leaving and only when they need to replenish the roster that Premik Karnowski from Poland ends up being a starter for the 2016 and 2017 Gonzaga Bulldogs teams. So now we get to 2017 and another one-and-done player enters the fold for Gonzaga, and that is Zach Collins. Y'all may remember Zach Collins. Zach Collins found himself as one of the top one-and-done prospects coming out of the college recruits. He was a five-star recruit, according to four-and-a-half to five-star recruit, depending on which system you're looking at. And Zach Collins and Killian Tilly, who's not a one-and-done, but ends up being a four-star recruit, ends up coming to Gonzaga. They also get a a three-star from Japan and Killian Tilly from France, by the way. They get a three-star recruit from Japan named Rui Hachimura, who is someone that if you know the NBA now, he currently plays for the Washington Wizards. But during this 2017 season, Rui Hachimura couldn't even find the floor on this Gonzaga team because Gonzaga had so many players. They went like nine deep into their roster and all of them had a chance to play either G League basketball or in Europe or another country sometime down the road. They had Karnowski as the starter. They had Nigel Williams-Goss as a fifth-year uh, fifth, fifth point guard playing for their team at this point. They had Jonathan Williams. Remember the transfer we mentioned a second ago? Both of them were starting. Jordan Matthews was a top recruit. Josh Perkins was a rookie on these teams, who just or a freshman who had just come in. Killian Tilly was a freshman. Zach Collins was a one-and-done player who was going to be picked 10th in the NBA draft in 2017. He couldn't even start on this Gonzaga team because he was behind seven foot one, 295 pound Premick Karnowski. Top 10 pick in the draft. Couldn't find the floor on this Gonzaga team. It was a perfect confluence of events that also led to Zach Norville, who will become an intricate part of the team a couple years later. He ends up redshirting that year. So they don't even have a player who would become a star years down the road. And Rui Hachimura is like the 12th guy deep on the bench. Future top 10 pick in the NBA draft is the 10th guy deep on this Gonzaga bench. And this Gonzaga team was so good. And I know we've talked about a couple of really good Gonzaga teams. 2013 with Kyle and Kyle Wilcher. Yeah, that team was incredible. 2006, when they were the number one team in the entire country. That team was also really, really good. This Gonzaga team lost one game the entire season. One pitiful game the entire season. They beat top teams all over too. They beat Arizona, who was ranked in the top 10. They beat Iowa State, who was ranked in the top 25. They beat Florida, who was ranked in the top 25. They beat St. Mary's twice when they were ranked in the top 25. They were undefeated the entire season until they lost to BYU the last game of the season. They still got to be the number one seed, They just lost the chance to be undefeated going into conference play in the last game of the season to goddamn BYU. But they get the number one seed. They get to March Madness. They dominate the first three rounds of the tournament. They win by 20. They win by 10. They barely edge out a win against West Virginia in the game that they usually tended to lose in the past. And they make it to the Elite Eight. And fortunately for them, they get an amazing break. Finally, they get an amazing break. And they get to play Chris Mack, who looks like Vladimir Putin's underdog 11 seed Xavier. I forgot what their name is, but Xavier from the Big East. I think they're the Wildcats, maybe. Xavier is a Cinderella team, and Gonzaga dominates them. 36-1. 
only one loss the last game of the season. Top 10 NBA players can't even start on these teams. And for the first time, Mark Few makes it to the Final Four at the University of Gonzaga. And they get to the Final Four and they get another great break because they get another Cinderella team. They get to play South Carolina of Frank Martin. And I believe that team had... God, the guy who was on the he's on the Clippers. I'm so mad that I can't remember his name now. But they had two NBA players on their team. But they were a seven seed and they put up a fight. But Gonzaga won and Gonzaga got to play for the national championship. And by the way, they were favored in the national championship game. They were playing North Carolina, who was a one seed and the year before had lost in the national championship to Villanova. That Gonzaga Bulldogs were favored against a one seed who just went to the championship the year before. And Gonzaga, down four at the very end, gets a, the ball stolen, an outlet pass to Justin Jackson, and dunked to lose the game. They were down five then, they'd lose the game by six, but they had one possession to try and tie the game at the end of the national championship. And they couldn't quite get it done. And Gonzaga got to be so close to forever being a champion. To putting up a banner at a tiny school in the middle of Spokane, Washington. That was now growing into a gigantic school. Because Gonzaga saw its admissions rise in the aftermath of this era. They had gone now one and done with Zach Collins, who would go to the draft that year, they had recruited internationally, whether it was Karnowski or whether it was Kelly Olynyk or Robert Sacre or uh, not Kyle Wilcher, but they went internationally to recruit stars. They recruited the state of Washington, whether it be Adam Morrison or whether it be Kyle Wilcher. They recruited stars out of the state of Washington and they would get another star from Washington in this next coming draft named or in this next coming uh, recruiting class named Corey Kispert. Keep that name in the back of your mind for when we get to the most recent run of Gonzaga basketball. So they'd get Corey Kispert to come play. They'd also still go to France and get a four-star recruit named Joel Ayayi. Keep that name in mind when we get to the next era of Gonzaga basketball. They had done all of that and were doing one-and-done recruiting now and were working the transfer portal because who did they get as a transfer following the championship run? A future draft pick named Brandon Clark, who would end up forgoing his eligibility after one season at Gonzaga in 2018 to get drafted by the Memphis Grizzlies. Brandon Clark, also preseason Hall of Famer on the Take It Easy Podcast's preseason Hall of Fame. But anyways, in 2018, they make it to the Sweet 16, again only losing one conference game the entire season. They lost a bunch of people from their other teams, but they were still a really talented team. They were a four seed, and they made it to the Sweet 16. They actually got an easy matchup against Florida State that year, and they end up losing to Florida State. But still, they had a matchup against Florida State. And this is a team now, again, from where we started 20 years ago. Gonzaga was a tiny program in the West Coast Conference. In 2014, I skipped over this, they had a flirtation with joining the Mountain West, but only as a basketball school. And Gonzaga, as a program, decided to stay in the West Coast Conference, in part because the Mountain West wasn't super enthusiastic about adding an only basketball program. But Gonzaga was the best team there, no questions asked. Gonzaga, by this point, with UCLA having an incredibly long down period following that run of success in the 2000s, USC being flexible, San Diego State being great, as I will attest, they had Kawhi Leonard, they made the tournament six straight years, their success couldn't rival what Gonzaga was doing. West of, say, Memphis or North Carolina, or let's say west of Kansas, there was no program better than the Gonzaga Bulldogs from the West Coast Conference that never made the tournament until 1995 and never made it past the Sweet 16, even though they were consistently a top-five team 15 years ago, and they kept sustaining success year after year after year. And in 2019, they went undefeated again, lost three games the entire season. And Gonzaga had a team now with Brandon Clark, Rui Hachimura starting, 
Kispert working his way into the lineup. Zach Norville, I mentioned him earlier. Good thing you remembered him. And still a holdover from the freshman national championship run, Josh Perkins. They also had Filip Petrusev from Serbia. He was a big on that team. Killian Tilly was still playing there from France. They had gone international. They had gone to the national recruiting pool. They had gone to the state of uh, they had gone to the state of Washington. They had gone through the transfer portal. They'd gone into California. They were a national recruiting powerhouse in so many different places with so many different people in different worlds that end up recruiting everyone to the same place in a really really fascinating trend. And that year. In 2019, they end up being number one in the entire country. They finished the season ranked number one in all of college basketball in 2019. They get to be a number one seed for the fourth time, and they make it to the Elite Eight where they lose to a third seed Texas Tech Red Raiders team who goes to the national championship game and loses in overtime to the University of Virginia. So two years removed from making the national championship, Gonzaga has a season where they are the number they are a number four seed in March Madness, and then they're a number one seed the very next season. It took two years to replenish all of their talent. In 2020, they lost two games the entire season. They were going to be a number one seed in March Madness. And then the COVID-19 pandemic canceled the season for Gonzaga. One of their best teams in 2020. They were going to be a number one seed for the second consecutive year. Then we get to 2021. And if you remember last season, that was the magical Gonzaga basketball team that went undefeated in the regular season. Number one team in the entire country. And they had a big four. Because that year... They recruited, in 2020, they recruited Jalen Suggs, the number one recruit in the entire country. And they recruited a man named Julian Strother, who came from Nevada. He was also a four-star recruit. And Dominic Harris from California, four-star recruit. Gonzaga brought in a one-and-done stud in Jalen Suggs and brought in more four-star recruits to their class and Gonzaga in 2021 with the number one recruit in the country, Jalen Suggs, along with a recruit from Texas who they got in 2019 named Drew Timmy. If you know him right now, Drew Timmy is now a senior at Gonzaga who is the best player on this current Gonzaga team, along with Kispert from Washington and Joel Ayayi. That big four went undefeated. All three of them, well, all four of them would get drafted. But that big four went undefeated in conference play, undefeated in the regular season, number one overall seed in March Madness, and they kicked ass. And the reason I'm fascinated by this team so much, and this team last year was actually the reason that I wanted to do this story with the University of Gonzaga, is because the perfect culmination of all of this run for Gonzaga, it was a one-and-done recruit, the best recruit to ever come to Gonzaga. He's a top-five pick in the NBA draft. They had reached a place where one-and-done recruits wanted to come to Gonzaga. They got one-and-done recruit. They got star from the state of Washington, Corey Kispert, who would end up being a top uh, lottery pick in the NBA draft in 2021. They got Drew Timmy, top four-star national recruit from Texas. And they got Joel Ayayi, international player. And all of it was a perfect culmination of everything Gonzaga had been doing. Andrew Nembhard, who also played on that team, transfer player. All of the different routes came together and Gonzaga built a powerhouse team with all the different ways. They started out recruiting Washington. Then they went international. Then they went to the transfer portal. Then they tried to get one and dones with Sabonis and Collins and now Jalen Suggs and soon to be Chet Holmgren, who was going to be a top five pick in this year's NBA draft, who Chet is presumably the best player on Gonzaga, although most people would say it's Drew Timmy. And they were the number one overall seed this year in March Madness. So Gonzaga, for the fourth consecutive season, was a number one seed. For the sixth time in 10 years, or I'm sorry, sixth time in nine years, was a number one seed. Gonzaga 
is the powerhouse program of college basketball who somehow never goes through cycles. And that undefeated Gonzaga team, you may remember last year, with the Jalen Suggs buzzer beater against UCLA, lost in the national championship game, about to become the first perfect team in the history, uh, or sorry, going back 70 plus years in college basketball. The 1970s was the last time there was a perfect team. The 1976 Hoosiers, the last perfect team in college basketball. And Gonzaga was one game away, 31-0. They lost the last one to Baylor. And this year's team just might be eliminated by the time you're listening to this, but they also just might be in the Final Four for the third time in five years with a fourth consecutive team with a number one seed. I know they didn't seed the tournament in 2020, but they would have been a number one seed. Four straight years as a number one seed. Six times in nine years. 20 years consecutively making the tournament. And Mark Few, who is, you know, not necessarily the most well-liked guy in college basketball circles, somehow builds from Gonzaga University, the powerhouse program of the 2010s, in college basketball and they are part of the changing landscape of college basketball which is you don't have to go to a duke you don't have to go to a kentucky you don't have to go to a kansas to be a star player one and done players are rejecting those programs altogether and want to just go straight from high school once the nba rules begin to change and it's so fascinating to see this change of the college sports landscape over the past shall we say 15 20 years led by a tiny school in Spokane Washington and a guy named Mark Few who for 20 years stayed at Gonzaga oversaw the Gonzaga program and somehow built up a powerhouse program with 10 runs to the Sweet 16 making the tournament every year for 20 years six number one seeds actually seven number one seeds now that I think about it Well, no, I guess the Adam Morrison team wasn't. Six number one seeds in nine years. Gonzaga has built a legitimate powerhouse program beyond Kansas, beyond Duke, beyond North Carolina. Mark Few and his tiny little program with a 6,000-seat arena in Spokane, Washington, has outlived all of the great coaches in college basketball and played the system so well that he built a powerhouse basketball program bringing the top NBA draft prospects, top transfer players, and four- and five-star recruits to Gonzaga in Spokane, Washington, while doing it all in the West Coast Conference, which is a much better conference today simply because they have Gonzaga, but also put as many teams in the tournament this year as the Pac-12 and as many teams making it past the first round as the SEC and Mountain West Conferences combined. And it's a really incredible, incredible story about what happened to the West Coast Conference and Gonzaga simply because this program exists. And it's incredible, incredible that a tiny school in Spokane, Washington changes the entire college basketball landscape and goes from a no-name program making Cinderella runs as a 10 seed to 20 years later without a giant alumni base dominating college basketball. That's why I spent an hour talking about this Gonzaga team.